The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Some of you know that uh, Common Ground Meditation Center is part of this movement in the West that is called the Insight Meditation or Vipassana Meditation Movement or Tradition coming out of Theravada Buddhism, this sometimes called Classical Buddhism or Pali Buddhism in the sense that the teachings are really grounded in the historic teachings of the Buddha recorded in the Pali Canon. Pali is a language spoken around the time of the Buddha. So this kind of Buddhism comes from countries like Sri Lanka and Thailand and Burma and Cambodia and Laos to some degree. And this word Vipassana means insight or means clear seeing. And in this chapter that, in the book that we've been looking at, Ajahn Chah's book, Food for the Heart, he talks about Vipassana, clear seeing. And there's this dynamic, actually, in, in this awakening process between calm and insight. And they really work together. And as you might expect, as it is true in so many places, you know, there are all these debates about, like, calm versus insight. But the whole point is not to be in favor of one over the other, or I, I do meditation for calm, or I do meditation for insight. The point is to really understand how they work together. It's actually a beautiful dynamic, and we really want to understand it directly. I mean, intellectually, but more importantly, we want to understand it directly in our experience, how calm and insight work together. And it really transforms the mind. From the Buddhist point of view, there's only one problem, and I think I mentioned this last week. The only problem we human beings have from the Buddhist point of view at least, is what you could call wrong view, or we're misperceiving what's going on. We're not seeing clearly. So the way to transform the world is by transforming our heart, transforming the tendency of our heart or mind to see things with wrong view, or to see with misperception, to misperceive rather <clears throat> what's going on. And so that engine of awakening, of transforming or purifying our view, or purifying the way the mind is seen, involves this dynamic of calm and insight. Insight is more, a more active quality of the mind. The mind is actively discerning the way that it is, and it's uprooting the way that it thinks it is. So we're, so we're kind of replacing the way we think it is, who we think we are, what we think is happening, with a direct knowing, oh, it's like this. But that direct seeing, that clear seeing, depends on calm. Because when we're not calm, that means, you know, by definition, when we're not calm, that means my mind is under the influence of some reactive pattern, that I have some habit of being defensive or being fearful or wanting things to be different than they are wanting to be home, not liking my body, thinking I'm better than you. I mean, all of these are various, you know, and there's an, probably an infinite 
number of reactive patterns we human beings could get lost in. But when we are lost or attached, caught up, believing in them, then that pattern, that view, literally colors the mind. It affects what we see, how we see or experience the moment. And then what we do, how we think, what we say, how we act, it comes out of what we're seeing. And if we're not seeing clearly, instead we're misperceiving, well then our actions are going to be out of alignment. They're not going to work very well. And we're going to end up with a world like we have, where there's all these consequences from greed, all of these consequences coming out of aversion and fear and hatred and just basic distractedness or disconnection. Whatever woe you want to point to in the world, it all is based in this misperception. And that you can train your mind to see it that way. Because otherwise the tendency from a very superficial point of view is to think somebody must be evil because the world is so screwed up or this terrible thing is happening. And there's somebody who's evil and we blame them. And if we could only get rid of them or transform them, then the world would be fine. But we're not really seeing the real seeds of this terrible thing. It may be terrible, but the root of that terrible thing, whether it's poverty or oppression of one kind or another, the real root is exists in our minds, our collective minds. The mind that is under the influence of wrong view, of greed and aversion and delusion. So, whether we know it or not, I think it's fair to say, we all have a powerful, powerful incentive to transform the mind, to transform wrong view into right view, or to transform misperception into seeing clearly how it is. So that our view and all of our thoughts, words, and deeds are coming out of that alignment, the mind seeing things as they are, as opposed to seeing things the way that we were programmed to see them. These people are better, these people are worse. I deserve this. You know, that's just fate, that's the way it is. But not really taking in the whole picture. So the Buddha gives us uh, this dynamic, you know, he teaches this dynamic of calm and insight. Samatha and Vipassana, or the way you pronounce the Pali word. Samatha means the calm. Vipassana means this clear seeing. And really think of it as a as an engine. And that's something that can get out of balance. Because if we really start getting into the calm then we can be, we can become averse to anything that's going to disturb my calm. Not just even in our formal sitting time, like the cat jumps on our lap or, you know, our phone goes off or something like that. And it feels like a personal insult, something that's attacked my practice. But even as you're sort of, you've got your really harmonious routine in your minds, you've got all your sort of views about the world and you're cruising through life in a smooth way, and then somebody throws a wrench in it. And you can feel like it's a betrayal, like somebody screwed up my life. They've messed up. Now i got to take care of this mess. i got to deal with this. And it feels 
like a problem. But that's because the mind has become attached to ease, attached to smoothness. Because we think, don't we, that happiness is correlated with the smoothness of our life, the absence of interruptions or the absence of, you know, insults and uh, disturbances. And it's, that's, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I'm, we all fall into this. I'm not immune to this either. Thinking that what we're trying to do in life is have a smooth ride. But having a smooth ride in life may be pleasant. Clearly it is. You know, it's definitely more pleasant to have a smooth ride through life than to have one insult after another. Getting sick, losing somebody you love, dealing with poverty or lack of financial support or, you know, any number of insults. People not like having to work for somebody who's a, not a very nice person. I mean, there's any number of ways our life can be disturbed. Clearly it's more pleasant when it's smooth. But needing life to be smooth in order to be happy is stressful. Being dependent on the smoothness of life, the weather being nice, having cars that work, you know, furnaces that work, bodies that work, friends that treat you the way you want to be treated, pets that behave, don't ever vomit or poop in the wrong place. All of those needs, it's, it's stressful to have all of these needs, to need the world to be smooth. So this is true, even though we might get good both externally in creating harmony and then internally in our meditative process, we can get quite skilled at having an even, smooth, calm mind. Hopefully that will happen for all of us. In a perfect world, we'd all be experts at living harmoniously and having calm in the mind. But we wouldn't want to be dependent on that. So this is where insight comes in. In a way, you know, like in a perfect world, you'd become so skilled at interacting with all the different people you have to interact with, and so skilled at working with your own mind, that you'd have, like, great harmony. You'd be really likable, you'd be very generous, people would love you, take care of you, you'd take care of them. You know, it's like that uh, Truman Show. You know, where everyone says hello, and did anybody see that movie long ago? That sort of made-up world that, what's his name, Carrie? What's his first name? Jim Carrey was the star in that movie, and he was born, uh, he didn't realize, but into, uh, what do they call those TV shows that are based on real life? Reality shows. <laughs> there we go. But he didn't know he was in a reality show. <laughs> and they, you know, kind of created this little bubble, this Norman Rockwell kind of bubble that he lived in. Everyone else was actors and actresses, but he was oblivious to it all, never left it. If you didn't see it, I don't think I've given anything away. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we can think that that's how it should be, you know, this sort of smooth ride. But it's really missing the point. The point is to be free of any dependencies, including harmony, including calm. That it's really nice to have harmony in our external world and have calm in the mind in order to realize 
of freedom from being dependent on anything. And that's really what insight's about. It's not like I'm trying to figure out how to be free. Actually, the freedom comes from understanding. And this is the great, this is the great trick in practice. Because what drives samsara, what we call these cycles of suffering, is sort of trying to be happy but always ending up making ourselves not happy. This is what we've done since the beginning of time, according to the Buddha. So the problem is that we're trying to be happy in the wrong way. Trying to fix something like, we always think that in order to be happy, I need to make the world a particular way. The world of my mind, or the world of you guys, my home life, it doesn't matter how we define the world, but it's this. I have to make this fine. And so the Buddha asks us to uh, create some harmony and some calm, get really good at that, and then not to just rest on our laurels, like on the nice feeling of harmony and the nice feeling of inner calm, but to use that steadiness in our lives, in our mind, to investigate, to discern the nature of things. So instead of trying to be happy, which is not what the Buddha taught, I mean, initially, in a sense, we're trying to be happy by creating harmony, creating steadiness in the mind. In a sense, in a worldly sense, we're trying to be happy. But it's just a means to the deeper work of insight, which is using that calm to better understand what this is. Like, who is it that wants to be happy? And is there any happiness? Is there anybody to get happiness? And is there any happiness to get? in the way that we assume, unquestionably. So we're kind of taking some steps back, and we're actually looking at the mind-body process in a very direct, honest, unblemished, or, uh, you know, not, uh, not affected by our thoughts about things. And what we begin to discover are these, what I uh, described in the... Uh, guided meditation tonight, we begin to discover these three characteristics. And it can be really useful for us to learn them intellectually, you know, to hear them in a talk or read about them in a book, and then to think about them, these three characteristics, so that as we're opening, you know, we're calm, the mind is steady, there's that inner contentedness, so we're not feeling we need things to be different than they are. The mind is willing to just look at things as they are because it's not trying to manipulate the moment to make it different than what it is because it's already feeling pretty content. That's what calm brings us. It, it brings that contentedness so then when we're discerning or investigating the nature of the moment, there's no agenda because the heart, the mind is already feeling content. So it's willing to see things as they are and so, getting this instruction from the Buddha about these three characteristics, noticing the impermanent nature, the unsatisfactory nature, and the impersonal nature of any experience, whether you're looking at emotion or thought or externally looking at sight or sound or noticing the sensations in the body, doesn't matter what aspect of present moment reality you're observing, but... The Buddha suggests, observe the changingness, the impermanent nature of that object, of the, that phenomena. Or observe the unsatisfactory nature 
of whatever it is you're knowing. Or observe the impersonal nature of whatever it is you're knowing. And to do it over and over and over again. Because you know, when we're practicing mindfulness, there's so many different things we could be mindful of. I mean, we could spend the entire set being very mindful of the sound of the blower. But we wouldn't actually, we might be really calm at the end of that 35-minute sit because of the continuity of awareness, being fully present with the sound, you know, that blowing sound. Being fully present, that means the mind wouldn't be doing anything else. So it wouldn't be agitating itself by worrying about our to-do list or comparing ourselves. Like, boy, I really listened to the blower so much better yesterday than I am today. <laughs> there would be none of that. It would just be the sound of the blower for 35 minutes. We'd be really calm, but we wouldn't be any wiser at the end of that. We'd just be calm. And that's what calm, that's what the practice of calm does. It, it really is healing in a sense because it heals the mind from agitation, you know, the opposite of calm. But it doesn't change the view of the mind. It doesn't transform the view or the understanding. And that's the basic problem. The problem is wrong understanding. So the, the correction, the way to correct wrong understanding is to feed the heart, the mind, with direct experience so that it overwhelms wrong understanding. Because what is wrong understanding built on? Misperception. You know, so it's like, you know, the, in Buddhism, the obvious example of wrong understanding is to imagine there's a self separate from everything. Right? It's just, and we all have that feeling to some degree in this moment. We all have a sense of being somehow apart from everything. And generally, for humans, that perception is unquestioned. It's just assumed that it's true, that I am here, and in some very real sense, I'm apart from everything else. So go. it's a perception that goes unquestioned. But if I could develop some steadiness in the body and mind, enough contentedness that when I was encouraged, you know, got some instructions that encouraged me to get interested in experience, and in particular, you know, instead of being mindful, really interested in the sound of the blower, I took up the Buddhist instructions and I got really interested in how everything's changing. Whether I'm aware of the sound of the blower or I'm aware uh, that that sound is happening here in my mind or whatever it is that I'm aware of, but that it's in flux. That there isn't any solid ground or solid entity anywhere. We can imagine, I can imagine a solid entity, Mark. Mark used to be a teenager, then he was a young adult, and now he's 54, and eventually he'll get old and die. That story seems to be an entity. As long as I keep saying sort of the, basic, the same story over and over again, it has the appearance of being an entity. But it relies on a continual process of me retelling the same story over and over again, which is always changing, always the retelling of who I am. I'm that guy. I'm this guy. I'm here. You're there. So the process of making myself seem like a permanent entity is an ever-unfolding process. It never stops. It keeps going. 
So when we get really honest and direct about our actual experience, we see it's changing. And that evidence, that sort of direct experiencing of the present moment, it comes in as data, so to speak. And eventually, wrong view based on misperception gets overwhelmed by direct experience. And right view arises out of that. And from the Buddhist Buddha's point of view, right view is a view that is grounded in the experience of impermanence, the truth of impermanence, the truth that because of impermanence, because everything is coming and going, there is this process nature that underlies absolutely everything. There is nothing in the world that isn't uh, in the process of unfolding. And because of that, it's never there's never really any ground that the sense of self wants. So it's unsatisfying. Because from a relative self point of view, I want solid ground. I want to be somebody. I want to be safe in a solid, permanent way. You know, I want things to find. Even if they're unpleasant, I want my ground. You know, boy, the world is screwed up. I mean, we make ground in all kinds of ways. You know, we sort of define things as a truth that I have, an opinion that I have. So in many different ways, we try to create ground that no matter how temporarily temporarily we feel grounded, we feel sort of strongly grounded in that's true. This is who I am. This is the way that it is. This is who you are. It keeps changing. We have to keep patching it up, but even so, it keeps changing. So it's unsatisfying. And so as we pay close attention, we'll notice that things are changing and that the ego always finds it unsatisfying, dissatisfying, that it's changing. It's uncomfortable that we can't sort of set things in a permanent way. So that's the second characteristic that we just start to notice. And that's really important information to let in, that experience. So we're noticing change. We're noticing how unsatisfying everything is. Like even simple things. You go home tonight and you're having your proverbial bowl of ice cream or bowl of soup or, you know, whatever it is for you that you have or nothing, you know, favorite beverage, favorite TV show. But as you're there, noticing that whatever it is you're doing, having a bowl of ice cream, watching a show, that it's in the process of becoming over. It's in the process of ending. Even if you're right at the beginning of the bowl, you're aware that it's ending. <laughs> and notice how, like, it, you can't really be attached when you know that. Attachment only works when you're willing to delude yourself that this is somehow lasting. Like if you're really aware, even in terms of your own life, if the perception that this life is slipping through your fingers, it will end, guaranteed, and we don't know when it will end, it's really hard to be attached to life when we know how ephemeral it is. Even though we may, you know, have 30 years left or 50 years left, some of you. But we don't know, and we, and we can know that we don't know. We can be aware it's like when you're aware of your heartbeat, you never know when it's going to stop. We all know that things happen quickly sometimes. We could drive home and die. So 
it really affects like our attachment to this vacation we want to take that we're saving up for and it's going to happen in two years. Like all of a sudden it's not so important. I mean, it doesn't mean we won't save up for it, but knowing how ephemeral things are, all of a sudden the heart isn't clenched around that thing that is going to happen, should happen, want to happen. So the Buddha gives us these three things, to observe as we're steady, to observe change, to get interested in change. doesn't matter if we're with the breath or doing a more open attention and just noticing the predominant phenomena that are coming and going in the field of experience. But we're noticing the changingness, the ephemeral nature of all phenomena, whatever it is that's catching the attention in that moment. We're noticing how unsatisfying, dissatisfying experiences when the mind is clearly seeing the ephemeral nature, the processed nature. Attachment just doesn't make as much sense when we see that. And then finally, the, even more subtle, but ultimately more important, most important maybe, is to see the impersonal nature of all phenomena whether you're observing thinking in the mind or the movement of emotion or the movement of sensation or the movement of sound or the movement of sight or the movement of sensation. So whatever we're aware of is clearly comprehending. We're clearly comprehending that that movement of sensation in the body is impersonal. I'm not doing it. Like, did you notice that tonight when you were aware of the body? Are you doing the sensation. No, sensations are being known. So the knowing is not the same as the sensation. Sensations come and go, and that coming and going of sensation, it's an unfolding process arising out of, who knows, all the different supporting causes and conditions. Can you stop it? You know, can you make your sensations this way or that way? Do we govern the sensations? How about the mind, the thoughts? Are you, in any real sense, deciding what you're going to think? What your emotion or what your feeling or attitude is? Do you make them go away when you don't like them? No, emotions and thoughts and attitudes and moods, they come and go a lot like weather comes and goes due to these innumerable causes and conditions that there is nobody governing so many different forces at play in this interdependent world we live in. This can be discerned. We can, the mind can, the heart can wake up to the impersonal nature, the not-self nature of experience. The more that we take the Buddha's advice, and with that steadiness of mind, that calm, we get interested in seeing things changing, seeing that things are unsatisfying, seeing that things are impersonal. And we just keep letting that, those facts, those basic facts, and all day long, and then specifically during our meditation time, keep observing, discerning, recognizing this, then what arises from that is right view. And we can we know right view because right view comes with the freedom from grasping, the freedom from attachment. So 
right view is the equivalent of liberation. The mind that is liberated from unproductive grasping, unproductive stressing, unproductive resistance, unproductive uh, disconnecting or cutting, sort of dividing up, fragmenting our world with our thoughts. You know, like I can, we have ways of constructing meaning with language and then getting identified with it. Like, uh, you guys are out to get me. I could construct that meaning. You guys are all laughing at me, aren't you? And then, so I can construct that thought. Anybody here can construct that thought. But you're a real master of illusion or delusion if you can then get identified with the thought you've constructed. That's a trick. But we do it all the time, don't we? You know, whatever. Think about all the monsters that we create and then are frightened by. Joseph Goldstein, one of my teachers, describes this as, you know, we're walking around with a bunch of children, you know, four, five, six-year-olds in Halloween masks, totally oblivious that they're just six-year-olds with masks, you know. And so we see the pirate, and, you know, we freak out, and we see the ghost, or we see the... But they're just constructions of our mind, the little childlike play of the mind. Now, that's not our experience, because we're, we uh, are in the habit of respecting the constructions of meaning, the, what we do with language. We think something, and we get identified with it. But the more we see things coming and going, see how attachment is unsatisfying because things are coming and going. They're not stable. They're uncertain. Attachment doesn't make sense. The whole strategy to be happy through clinging, through creating something permanent, doesn't make sense. And the more we see that things are impermanent, are impersonal, that deeply undermines that pattern of grasping. So we begin to experience the liberation of non-grasping, moments of the mind or heart not involved in any kind of grasping, any kind of clinging, identifying, attaching. And it's initially, it's like a different universe because our heart, our mind, has so continuously grasped after one thing after another through our life that it's very unfamiliar to experience moments when the mind and heart is relatively or completely free of grasping. It doesn't happen very often. Some of the times you might have experienced something like that feeling of non-grasping is when you've had a lot of pleasantness arise, but before you get attached to it. And the attachment to pleasantness comes very quickly, but in the first moments of something really beautiful arising in your life, you're just with some really loving friends, and you're just showing up, and there's that first moments of feeling uh, deeply safe because you're in a really good place. But, but, but before the mind does anything, creates any meaning around that. And then you can get a little sense of that, like it's not even the same, but it's in the same direction, like the freedom from fear in that moment. The freedom from wanting anything, right? Because you had, in that moment, you're feeling really content. So that wanting is gone. 
Fear is gone, aversion is gone, wanting is gone, and because it's pleasant, distractedness is gone too, right? Because you're really alert, you're present. So it has the taste, those moments can have the taste of this liberation, but they're often usually fleeting. You know, they last for just an instant. And we tend to immediately associate, like, I'm feeling good because I'm, I've got what I want. But that's not why you were feeling good, actually. The moment felt good because the mind was relatively liberated from grasping. It wasn't grasping because it had something good, true. But it wasn't the having the something good that led to the happiness or the liberation. It was the mind not grasping, not needing the moment to be other than what it was. There was no attachment there for an instant or a couple instants. So the Buddha suggested if we systematically reflect on these three things, we'll move in the direction of liberation. And he used a really natural image. He said, in the same way that the Ganges inclines towards the great ocean, right, the Ganges River, where he was teaching, unstoppably, you know, moves in the direction of the ocean. In the same way, your practice unfolds to nibbana, to liberation. Can't be stopped. Because whatever suffering, you know, the way the Buddha described our existential predicament, whatever suffering there is, whatever kinds of entanglements we experience, burdens we experience in life, it is something that the mind has constructed out of misperception. So that, it's like that construction depends on the continuing misperceiving of experience. But when that cause is removed, when the mind is no longer misperceiving based on our conditioning, our habits, and is now seeing clearly, that's this word vipassana, insight, seeing things as they are, then we've uprooted the cause of our suffering, which was misperceiving. And that's that inevitable movement towards liberation. Now, it doesn't matter how long it takes. And, you know, the truth is, we have moments of clear seeing, and we have a couple moments of being deluded, caught up in our stories about stuff, and then maybe a moment of clear seeing, and then 20 minutes of delusion, you know, and then a few moments of clear seeing, and then a little bit more delusion, and then over the years, you know, more moments of clear seeing, fewer moments of delusion, and those moments of delusion are less toxic than they used to be. The mind's not so, not as much entrenched, identified with its views, its habits, and little by little, things get lighter, you know, the attachment isn't as fixed, isn't as heavy, isn't as tight, the grasping, the clinging. And we experience freedom. And this freedom has the quality of a disenchantment. And it's really interesting to understand that. I'll, I'll just mention this and then open it up for discussion. And this comes up a lot in our discussions, this inevitable experience of disenchantment. Because as we're seeing the change, the impermanent nature, the, unsa the unsatisfying nature and the impersonal nature of all phenomena, then appropriately the heart becomes 
disenchanted with its attachments. It becomes uh, dispassionate. From the ego point of view, the world isn't offering salvation anymore. And it's the ego that feels disenchanted. But that's not where it ends. So it's like this inevitable place where the heart, the deluded heart, the ego-based heart, has to let go of the world. And if that was it, you know, that's sort of a sad story. You know, the only thing the ego has is the world, and then because it sees it clearly for what it is, it lets go. It has nothing. You know, and so from the ego point of view, it's a very depressing story. And people think, well, why should I do this? And a lot of people give up their practice at this point where they're starting to get some calm, they've understood the teachings, they're applying the teachings, seeing the changing nature, the impersonal nature, the unsatisfying nature of experience, and they get depressed, they get nihilistic, and they go, what's the point? I might as well go watch a good TV show, you know, with a bowl of ice cream and chat with friends, because at least it's temporarily pleasant. Even though I know it's nothing lasting, I'll just sort of string together as best I can one relatively pleasant experience after another with a few gaps, you know, when I'm not able to find something. And I'll just do the best I can to stay happy until it all ends. And that's generally, you know, kind of that's what we think is the appropriate strategy for life. But we need to, we need to use the feeling of disenchantment, right? Because what we're, what we're experimenting with is when the heart lets go of attachment, does something, you know, what the Buddha calls liberation, does liberation arise? But, you know, we have to actually let go to realize this. This is one of those things like you can't just dip your toe in. You can't be attached and realize what non-attachment feels like. You know, I don't want to give up this until I know that. Well, we're never going to know that. So the Buddhist strategy is to see so thoroughly that attachment doesn't work, that it doesn't matter what's there. We just let go because it doesn't work. So this is why in Buddhism, in the Theravada Buddhism, where the teachings of the historic Buddha, he really emphasizes dukkha, stress. Because he's not talking about the ordinary stress of a knee that hurts when you sit too long. or He's talking about a pervasive dissatisfaction because a pleasant experience can never be locked in in a permanent way. That life, the experience of life is fundamentally unsatisfying. And when we really let that in, the heart drops clinging because it doesn't make sense. And it itself is stressful. So the heart just stops in a moment. For just a moment, it stops clinging. And then we can actually say, from our own experience, what non-attachment feels like. But until we have that moment of not grasping, and we're mindful, we have to be awake in that moment, not distracted, then we'll know what non-attachment is like. And we'll see it's not a nihilistic experience at all. Someone the other day who had who's had these experiences, said to me, yeah, it's the big okay. And I think that's actually a nice way of describing it. It's this, and not kind of a, 
Oh, it's okay. But like a big okay, it's always been okay. It's okay. It will always be okay. In a sense that life can be trusted completely. So this, it really allows us to move in, to engage life because it's okay. It's okay to connect. It's okay to show up. It's okay to respond. We don't have to have an aversive relationship to life. And we don't have to have a relationship of being dependent on the pleasant experiences. We can take life as it actually is, as messy as it is, as incomplete as it is, in this sometimes pleasant, sometimes unpleasant mode that it presents itself to us. We can take it just as it is because it's okay. And that, that powerful insight, that liberating insight comes from non-attachment. As long as we're thinking that attachment is the way to happiness, we will miss this way to happiness, this experience of liberation. So I'll leave it here. It'd be nice to hear from people from your own practice. And, of course, any questions that you have about what I've said tonight, what comes to mind? Wait one second. Uh, Steve, would you shut the ventilation? Or it's actually the fan. It's the middle button on the bottom of the thermostat. Thanks. Go ahead. Yeah. So there's all kinds of insights that arise in meditation and just generally being mindful. And you've described a couple of them. And first let me say, just to be able to calm your mind down is an insight. Because just to experience that calm, when we're sitting, like in doing formal meditation, there's so many things I could worry about or think about or compare or analyze. So just to have enough insight that the mind doesn't have to pick up that impulse. So we have the impulse, of, oh yeah, there's that, I gotta, but the mind doesn't need to follow that, to proliferate around that. It can let go. So that, it's small, but that's a real insight that every impulse, intention that arises in the mind doesn't mean we have to act it off. We can have hundreds, like to get calm, that means on one level or another, the mind is detecting hundreds of intentions, the intention to think about something, but it's not following through on it. Because it has insight that that intention is just an intention. It's not self. If it felt like it was really me who needed to think about this right now, we wouldn't be calm. We would be thinking about this, and then we'd be thinking about that, and the mind would just be proliferating all over the place. And it would be like that monkey mind, we call it, or that waterfall of thought. And that's generally agitating. It's not calm. So just to get calm, and just to like have some continuity of mindfulness with the breath, or with the body, or with present moment awareness, that itself is a, requires real insight 
to not engage all the things we might otherwise engage. And then in that steadiness, as you described, you know, it's like, uh, it's uh, almost like a vacuum, you know, that relative simplicity of the mind, just being with the breath, being with the sensations, being with walking. And in that relative simplicity of the mind, when a problem, like a, a life situation, some relationship, some issue at work, when that, just because of its momentum, reasserts itself into that simple mind, you know, it just arises, it's not like you made it come, but it's there, it has sort of a potential energy, so when there's the right conditions, that whole drama just arises. But now it's arising in a really simple mind, really clear mind, a mind that's not so much under the influence of greed and aversion, right? So you're seeing that problem from a new perspective. So all of a sudden, you might have an understanding that just seemingly spontaneously arises about that particular relationship or what you need to do at work. But it isn't so much that you figured something out, it's that that drama, that whole package arose in a different mind. This mind was simple, it was clear, and it wasn't so affected by greed and aversion. So the facts were interpreted in that simplicity, from that point of view. And then the picture looked different. So that's how a lot of, we call those, that level of insight, we call psychological insight, where we're, we're sort of, we have a, a different story to tell ourselves about that problem at work or that relationship. And that story is much more functional than the previous story that we were relying on. So we basically dropped one story, picked up another, but it's a more wholesome, useful story. And that level of insight we call psychological, and it's totally uh, useful because so much of our agitation is because we have really bad stories about what's happening to us or what's happening in the world. And those stories perpetuate agitation in the mind and upset. So if we get really wholesome stories, like, you know, just a simplistic example, everybody's doing the best they can. Now, if we just had that story alone, nothing else changed, but our basic callback story was everybody's doing the best they can, including myself we'd be much less agitated in the world. All of us, you know. But the, the deeper insights, you know, that just builds from there. It's like, for example, so we're calm, and then that story about some problem at work reasserts itself, like I described, you know, some difficulty we're having with our boss, let's say. But now let's say the mind is even more calm. So when that story reasserts itself, the mind, because it's so steady, so calm, before it asserts itself, it's aware in that moment, it's aware. And then in the next moment, as that that sort of thought and emotion is arising in the space of the mind and being known, the mind is actually seeing it arise right when it's arising. Normally we catch things moments after they've been in the mind. But when you can really see it arising, you learn something about that pattern. You learn that it's not self. Because when you see a thought in the moment it's arising, you see very clearly that I'm not making that happen. 
And so it uproots, that's that third insight the Buddha was pointing to, the seeing the impersonal nature. You see that whole drama and you realize, that's not me. And I'll give you an example. You asked about a personal example. I remember in the late 90s I was doing a three-month retreat at IMS. It's just a simple example. I was doing some walking meditation outside. And uh, doubt has, uh, you know, was a afflictive emotion that was common and still arises sometimes. Um, but something I knew well, something I'd been watching both in formal sitting and informal daily life for a long time, catching it sometimes, catching it really late other times, and noticing how caught up my mind was. But in that moment, and I remember the moment distinctly because it was so powerful, doubt arose, but the mind was crystal clear in that moment. The mindfulness was continuous in that moment. So when the doubt arose, and it was probably, I think it was a doubt about my practice, but when it arose, the mind was clearly aware, so there was no doubt, no doubt, no doubt, moment-to-moment awareness of the mind, of the body, just as it is, no doubt, no doubt, and then doubt. And then the mind clearly saw that the arising of doubt was not personal. And that scene, that one little instant of scene, has completely changed the mind's relationship to doubt. Every other time doubt has come up. Because now when doubt arises, even when I catch it late, like I've been sort of churning with doubt, but not really mindful, and then I catch, then I'm aware, oh boy, you know, I'm full of doubt. But whenever the mind recognizes doubt, now, because that was seen so clearly that doubt is impersonal, that this is just a thought, it's not self, that it's just less toxic. It's harder for the mind to take it personally when there is doubt in my mind. And so that's just an example how the deep insight works. If you see impermanence, if you see the unsatisfying nature, if you see the impersonal nature very deeply, it changes your mind stream. Everything that happens in the mind from that moment on is affected by that insight. And one of the definitions of this kind of insight, you could call this a, a spiritual insight as opposed to a psychological insight. Spiritual insight means it's an insight about the nature of the mind. It's not an insight about your particular conditioning or your particular circumstances. It's an insight that's true for all minds at all times. So that's, that's what we mean by a spiritual insight. And when we have it, it's, by definition, it's generalized. It's like the mind see something deeply enough that it understands that it's always been this way, always will be this way. Doubt will always be impersonal. It wasn't that in that moment, that arising, that thought of doubt was impersonal. But what it saw is something about the nature of thought itself. And not even doubt. But, you know, the mind even generalized like all afflictive thoughts that are arising are impersonal. I'm not thinking them in the way that we superficially assume that I'm doing that doubt, I'm feeling that shame, I'm feeling no good, or I'm feeling better than everybody. We realize, oh, that's just a thought, just a thought being known. Other thoughts? A little time left. Yeah, Lewis. Place where I'm really questioning what do I mean by I? Whenever I say I, what do I really mean by I? And 
Yeah. Well, as I understand that question, it could be really good if it leads to investigation. And an investigation that's relying on sort of a, a direct experiencing of the mind, as opposed to thinking about that question. Because you're, you're really asking, you know, what comes first? Like, am I thinking, or what, how did you phrase the other alternative? Or am I being taught? Yeah. Because what you want to see is that, that it, we all have the experience of self, right? So the Buddha never said, you're not actually having that experience of self you think you're having. We all know directly we're having the experience of self. The question is, what is that experience of self, or how is it arising for us, right? So we want to actually get interested in how that sense of self arises so that we can see what it is. Permanence. That I, I realize that I've been conditioned to look at things in a certain way in terms of race, sex, class, nationality, all of those independence. And it's, it feels more like I'm, like something's coming into focus. I don't see it clearly yet, but something's coming into focus. And it's not. Right. And that thing that's coming into focus may not be a thing. It may be an understanding. Like it may be an intuitive wisdom not to cling, you know, that or not to trust self-importance. Do you know what I mean? But it may not be like an identity. It may be not, it may not be something to replace those other identities with the right identity. It may be sort of a letting go, not needing an identity. And see, this is the thing about right view. It's different than wrong view. It's not really a view at all. Right view is really the absence of wrong view as opposed to this is the right way to view things. And so as it starts to come online, it's more, you know, in terms of articulating it, it's easier to articulate it as it's not that view, as opposed to saying what it is. But it's not that it isn't something, but what it what it turns out being is uh, it's like a, a trust in letting go, or a tr- like uh, Gil Fransdahl, one of the West Coast teachers, wonderful teacher, says, you know, Buddhism is more. It's not so much about the meaning of things but about an interest in the need for meaning. Do we need that meaning? Do we need to define, like, what's true? Or can we live as a loving, compassionate human being without the mind dependent on meaning? I, I guess I'm feeling like if I, let, if I keep letting go, there's a kind of confidence that I'm not going to fall. Yeah. Let's find out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for whatever reason, this is coming up, because it's good for us to imagine the time of death. 
and this just from what Lewis said, because that's a kind of falling. You know, we're falling into whatever that is. You know, leaving behind this body. We have no idea what happens. I mean, mostly, I'm guessing most of us don't know what happens. Anybody know? <laughs> Please let us know. <laughs> but mostly we don't know what happens, and it's sort of a falling into whatever that is that's next for us. You know, the mind stream, does it continue? Does it not continue? Does it matter if it continues? And the question is, can we trust that transformation, whatever it is, or that passing on, whatever it is? Can we completely trust it? Or does it somehow help to get tight or to resist? And then, then we can just bring that to this moment. You know, cause this moment, like we're, we're ending right now. It's already two minutes after. So we're ending now. And so whatever's next is about to arise for us. And, uh, you know, do we need to be holding on to this or fearful of what's next? Or can we, let life live through us. Like, let this natural, impersonal process keep moving on. We'll find out. <laughs> so let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words and maybe take a breath together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.